Well, before we begin our study today, let's pray together. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Asher Kedshenu, B'mitzvotav, V'tzivanu La'asok, B'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. In our Torah portion this week, we're beginning the readings in uh, Leviticus, which are interesting because, like in this week's Torah portion, we're introduced to the idea of the anointed high priest, and the word Hamashiach is introduced in the scriptures. So it's an interesting um, passage. As well, in our readings in Leviticus, we're going to come across the uh, second greatest command, which Yeshua said was the command to love your neighbors yourself. Many people look at Leviticus and they get to Leviticus, they start reading about all the specific laws, etc. Some people's eyes glaze over. And they, you know, like, I don't even know. Skim is not the correct word, because that's more slowly than some people go through Leviticus because they don't know what they're looking for. And uh, in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll take a careful look at the portions. But because Purim is coming up this coming week, I want to focus on uh, a Purim theme that's really important to us and timely. It has to do with anti-Semitism. And I, I want to introduce this theme by reading to you something that, that my wife Sandy wrote in her latest journal, just an introductory note for herself. Sandy has been reading the scriptures and taking notes about uh, the scriptures for decades now, and she writes uh, in, her, in her journals, she writes the scriptures down that touch her, and has an incredible uh, documentary history of her engagement with the scriptures and the way the Lord has used the scriptures. And as she began journal number 59, so that tells you she's serious, right? Number 59, she wrote these words. We are at a time in history when anti-Semitism is not just bubbling up here and there. Rather, there's been a shift in tectonic plates and anti-Semitism is spewing from deep wells and gushing forth in regions and countries all over the world. We shared that at, on our website, messianicjewishteachingsnow.com, and also on Facebook, and we heard from some people who, who asked the question, what prompted that? What, what event made you think about about things this way, and this is what Sandy wrote. I'm combing through articles I've read in the last few weeks, everything from anti-Semitism in international chess competition to BDS elbowing its way into Eurovision finals to Berlin being named the most anti-Semitic city in Europe, and yet British Jews are applying for German nationality in light of Brexit. And then on to the USA with hate crimes on the rise, primarily due to anti-Semitism. Congresswoman AOC, 
Sarsour and other Women's March organizers, the lack of rebuke by Dems to Congresswoman Lan Omar's anti-Semitic statements in what is termed her hatred of Israel, and then on to last Sunday's lurid Belgian floats and how quickly forgotten is the October 27, 2018 massacre at a Shabbat service in Pittsburgh. That's the short list. If you're familiar with all those, then you're keeping up with current events as it touches the Jewish people and as it's reflected in anti-Semitism in many different places. If you're unfamiliar with these things, then what it means is you're, you're not staying in touch yourself. And I would tell you, adjust your news consumption and your media consumption patterns so that you become aware and familiar with what's going on so that you can be alert, so that you can pray, and so that you can be informed, so that you can communicate with others as well. It's important to pay attention to the times and seasons that we are in. Well, with that in mind, Purim is coming up, and Purim is a time to be alert about anti-Semitism. It's the one holiday that recalls the murderous anti-Semitism that the Jews faced in ancient Persia. And it reminds us that God had a plan to rescue the Jewish people so that they could continue to live in Persia and so that they could continue to live. This is very important. There's always a need to discern God's plans. He has different ways of working in different places, in different situations, in different conditions, in different times. But he has plans for the safety and the redemption of the Jewish people, but some people get locked in and some people think, oh, you know what, God's plan is to get us out of here. And Purim is contrary to that. God's plan was to keep the Jewish people right in there. And God's plan was not to bring the children of Israel out of Persia at that moment, but for them to see God's hand at work, even in perilous times. As Mordecai told Esther, don't think you can hide. Don't think no one will discover that you're Jewish. Because remember what she said to her uncle. Hey, nobody knows. It's safe here for the beauty queen. And Mordecai said, wrong. If you don't do your part, God will raise some other way up to rescue us, but you will lose your life. It was pretty much like that. Don't think you can save yourself by hiding. Face the situation and see it the way God sees it. And he told Esther, and inspired her to uh, stand together with her Jewish people and to stand for her Jewish people and that if she were to do this, redemption would come. Purim reminds us we can't escape 
anti-Semitism. Sometimes we can't even avoid it. And sometimes we have to confront it head on. Purim also reminds us we can't just run away. Sometimes we need to stay put. There are so many people, when they get into difficulty and trouble, they think of the exodus. Or who was it, Snagglepuss? Exits? I think it was stage left. All in favor of left? All in favor of right? Okay, maybe right, I don't know. It was only one of them, but as Snagglepuss said, I haven't quoted Snagglepuss in, I think, five decades, but. <laughs> Some of us think that in the face of trouble, we just need to get out. And we think this is the way God works. But Purim teaches us it's not always an Exodus moment. Sometimes it's a Purim moment where you need to learn to stand your ground and you need to trust in God and be faithful to God and that through that faithfulness, God will work. Purim reminds us that some people who seem to be part of the problem like King Ahasuerus can become part of the solution. Think of it from a political point of view. Ahasuerus appointed an anti-Semite into his cabinet, gave him great power, and then joined with him in uh, certain political and legal activities that ultimately were anti-Semitic. And it would be easy to say, oh, woe be unto us, because we've got an anti-Semitic regime. But in fact, God turned the king. And so the king became an instrument of salvation. It's important to understand that people who are part of the problem can turn and become part of the solution. And Purim also reminds us that some victories must first be accomplished through fasting and prayer before they can be accomplished in the social or governmental realm. There are some people who lose sight of this and they think these are two different realms, the realm of the spirit and the realm of action. But I can tell you this, social action that's not connected to spiritual integrity will ultimately be voided. And the same with political action. Political action that's separated from staying right with God and discerning what is important to God, it can lead us into a great deal of action, but it won't necessarily produce change or lasting change that the Lord wants. And that's why the book of Esther is so useful to read because facing this political dilemma, facing this anti-Semitism, facing this murderous edict, the Jewish people joined with Esther and fasted together for three days. And fasting and prayer was preparatory to what then happened to redeem the Jewish people. Like many Jewish people, I experienced anti-Semitism as a child and through the decades of my life. And it was probably most pronounced during Christian holidays. So I can tell you that all the little Jewish kids in our area expected to be beat up or something like that. 
at Easter time and at Christmas. These, these are the memories we have of those holidays. And we would be accused by other boys our age of having killed Jesus. And so that's, those holidays were not our favorites. My family taught me to expect anti-Semitism, but not to be afraid of it, and especially not to be intimidated by it. And my family taught me not to hide my Jewishness and not to think that we would just be victims. That's very important because when you get a victim mentality, you think you will be powerless and that the inevitable and ultimate outcome is you will be hurt and that's all. But when you realize that we are called perhaps to go through suffering but not to, uh, to just be destroyed, we are called to trust in God even in difficulty. We are called to not be afraid. One of Yeshua's favorite favorite sayings was, don't be afraid. And he only said that when people were afraid. And they were only afraid because of what was going on. But he said, don't be afraid, I'm with you. It's important for us to understand that even in the face of anti-Semitism, there's, there's opportunity to build bridges of understanding. We can build bridges between Jews and Christians. We can build bridges between ethnic minorities. We can stand up for the rights of minorities, for the rights of those who are persecuted and oppressed, but who aren't Jewish. As important as it is to stand up for ourselves, it's in some ways even more important to have the moral courage to stand up for others even though it costs us something, even though it puts us at risk, even though it can be dangerous for us. And we learned in my family, if we stood up for others, not just for ourselves, it would be better for everyone. So we learned to do that. We learned not to hide who we were, not to be ashamed of who we were, not to be afraid of who we were, I remember some of the costs. I went to a, to a private school growing up, and every year that school put on a Christmas pageant with the students. And there was a month in which there were activities where each grade had to go and practice something for the pageant. They had to learn a song or something, and they would go and rehearse for, say, 45 minutes or an hour and come back. Every class did this. And then on a certain day, the pageant took place. Well, I can tell you where I was. I was sitting in my homeroom by myself because my parents taught us we're Jews. It's good for the Christians to do what Christians do but we're Jews and we don't do that. So I remember sitting in that classroom all by myself for a month, you know, an hour a day roughly, fully aware 
I'm a Jew and everybody knows it. Not only do I know it, they know it. Now, I didn't consider that to be a difficulty. In fact, there were some of the Christian kids who would come to me and say, well, I wish I was Jewish, then I wouldn't have to go to this stinking <laughs> rehearsal. <laughs> I don't know that they really would have wanted to be Jewish whatever benefit that may have been in their eyes, they would have had no idea what the difficulties would be. Well, whether you come from a Jewish background or not, if you're in the Messianic movement, you have probably been confronted by people in your family or by friends or by others who completely misunderstand what you're all about. How many have experienced that? And you may have experienced anti-Semitism as well among family and friends who can't imagine that being connected to the Jewish people is a good thing. There are Jewish people who don't want to be connected with the Jewish people. Seriously. Uh, there are Jewish people who come to faith in Messiah and they have such a negative experience in the Jewish world that they grew up in that they disassociate from all things Jewish. They don't want to be in a messianic synagogue. They want to hide. They want to be former Jews. I think it's a shame, but that's a reality. It's important, I think, to understand that anti-Semitism is all over the place when when we were uh, working in the former Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, uh, we were in Budapest preparing for an outreach, a Messianic Jewish outreach, and I received a call that was, um, it was like a summons. You are to be at this particular place the next morning to meet with the Jewish community leaders or else. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So, so we went there, and they basically told us that we couldn't do an outreach. And one of the reasons, you see, I thought the only reason would be that they were against us because we're messianic. But one of the reasons is, they said, if, if you do this big thing, and it's a Jewish thing, you're gonna stir up the anti-Semites in Budapest and make it worse for all of us who live here. And they believed in the idea that if you could just shrink and be quiet and not make trouble, then that's the best way to deal with anti-Semitism. Well, we looked at the history of how that worked in Budapest. Not so well. So we didn't agree with it. And let them know that our attitude about fighting anti-Semitism was different. It was to be bold and to be courageous and not to go into hiding and not to be secretive. And they thought, oh, this is terrible. You're just gonna make things worse for all of us. And I remember saying to them, you know, there are a lot of people here in Hungary who are Christians who know that their Messiah was born a Jew. 
and circumcised on the eighth day, that he, he uh, celebrated Shabbat and he kept the Passover and he lived as a Jew. And as I was talking like this, these, these men of great capacity actually some of them had a spiritual reaction. They started to tremble in their hands only, not in their faces, but in their hands. I realized something's going on. But one of them said something in response to that that I wasn't prepared for. He said, if we talk like this, if you talk like this, Christians will get angry and say you're trying to steal their God. I couldn't have imagined that as a response. But it helped me understand that anti-Semitism like I grew up with was relatively mild compared to the anti-Semitism that they were facing and had faced. The anti-Semitism of, of being slurred, if you will, even of being discriminated against, cannot compare to the anti-Semitism that's murderous. When we were working in Moscow at one point, a journalist who was covering the outreaches proposed that, that several of us go meet a representative of uh, the Black Hundreds which was a historically anti-Semitic group, uh, and have dialogue. And we weren't sure if we wanted to, but we agreed to do it. And when we got to the offices of this place, they were guarded by men dressed uh, with uh, jackboots and black leather, carrying automatic weapons. And we're walking in with Bibles. And uh, I remember saying to the journalist, why do you want us to meet with them? They're anti-Semites. And he said, well, I think it could be interesting. <laughs> and he said, and they're moderate. They're moderate. I said, what do you mean moderate? He said, oh, they just want all the Jews to leave Russia. They don't want to kill them. That's moderate. Ethnic cleansing with passports is moderate. But we did, we, we met with them. That's a whole other story. But we had experiences in many different places. We had experiences in the lands of the Holocaust, in the lands of Eastern Europe, in uh, the former Soviet Union. And almost on a daily basis, we met people who were Jewish but had not known it because their family had purposefully hidden their Jewishness as a strategy and a tactic to protect their children and their grandchildren and their descendants. Some of you have this in your family background and you, you know from your experience that your Jewish father, your Jewish mother, your Jewish grandmother or grandfather or great-grandparents were born as Jews, and because of what happened 
during the Holocaust and also preceding it during the pogroms and anti-Semitism uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries, that, that your family decided the only way to guarantee the safety of their descendants is to hide. And so there are Jews who got passports with Russian last names and Russian nationality so that they could pass. There were people who um, went into hiding. They hid it from their children, who hid it from their children so that the grandchildren had no idea that these people were Jews, that their family was Jewish. And then something happened. Often it was connected to coming to the Lord. When a Jewish person comes to the Jewish Messiah and realizes, wait a minute, this Messiah is one of us. The New Testament was written by our guys. There's an awakening that sometimes causes Jewish people to search and to then discover the truth of their family background. There were times when we would, it was almost like life was a Woody Allen movie or a Saturday Night Live skit of some sort because we would be talking with people who, because of their way of thinking, their way of behaving, their culture, all of their like external patterns and even their faces, they were clearly Jewish but when they looked in the mirror, they saw something altogether different. And we would laugh like, what do they see when they look in the mirror? I remember one guy who had been um, a heroin addict who came to the Lord and he, he got off drugs, but it turned out that he was Jewish, but he was sort of hiding it and hiding from it, and he had no real evidence. And we were talking to him and, and said, you know, you're Jewish. And he said, I don't know about that. And then later on, it became like an interesting idea, and it also became something that he wanted to know more about. But he said, but, but I have no facts, I have no documents. There are many Jewish people with this kind of background who say, but I have no documents. And so we just prayed, you know, would, would you like documents? And you'd be surprised how many people don't want to find the facts. But he did, and so we prayed, and I would say within about a month, he came across a box of documents from his grandmother about the experiences in her family going to uh, Auschwitz and other camps, uh, taken because they were Jews. And her Jewish name and their family background. In fact, we found many times that one side of the family knew the story and another side of the family knew nothing. And so you could have one person saying, we're not Jewish, and then their cousins are saying, oh yeah, you are. We are, 
I'll never forget the time we were in Arizona and I met someone who was a, a twin who had come across the reality of her own Jewish family background, but her twin brother was in denial. And so, <laughs> here was a, a woman saying, I'm Jewish, but my brother's not. My twin brother is not. We had an experience in Budapest where the mother of a Jewish guy was saying, okay, okay, you're Jewish, but I'm not. Such was life that we would see this on a regular basis. Well, we're living in a time where it's important to be alert to anti-Semitism. And I, I want you to not only become alert, but to do some work on your own. Read the book of Esther so you get a historical perspective in one part. But I also want you to think about this. There's, there are new forms of anti-Semitism on college campuses these days. So young people are embracing anti-Semitism. Uh, but their professors are as well. We need to be aware of that and alert to it. There's anti-Semitism on all political spectrums. So there's anti-Semitism on the right, and people on the left often think the right is guilty of anti-Semitism. But it turns out the left is guilty of anti-Semitism too. In any political spectrum, and I'm not talking about political parties, I'm just talking about whether you find yourself on the far right, uh, center right, center, center left, left, far left, you will find anti-Semitism working in different ways. Be alert to it so that you don't get intimidated by it and you can be useful for helping other people deal with it. There's anti-Semitism from religious folk. There's Christian anti-Semitism. Replacement theology is, an, is a harshly anti-Semitic theology. The IAMCS, of which we're a part, the International Alliance of Messianic Congregations and Synagogues, has identified other Christian anti-Semitic uh, doctrines, such as the two-house doctrine and the Ephraimite doctrine, which, um, like some other doctrines, are a form of replacement theology that sometimes is is mixed in with some messianic practice but is not identical to the messianic movement. There is uh, Islamic anti-Semitism. There's anti-Semitism because of ethnicity or ethnic hatred or conflict. And there's, there's anti-Semitism that's not just Pure anti-Semitism is just classic xenophobia, the fear of strangers, the fear of those who are different. Now, I want, to, I want to give you some resources that have influenced me. And the first one is a book about Bobby Yar by Anatoly Kuznetsov, written originally in Russian. And Bobby Yar is a, is a place in Kiev, Ukraine. It's, it's really a park if you think about it. Um, but it was a wooded area originally with a sort of a chasm in it and Jews were gathered up by the thousands and lined up on the edge of the chasm. And then on the other side, uh, Ukrainian troops and Nazis with machine guns just fired away. 
and Jewish bodies fell into the chasm and were just accumulated there in mass graves. And the story of Babi Yar is documented well in this book. It's worth reading. And we have had the experience of, of meeting those who, who lost loved ones at Babi Yar. And as well, uh, meeting some who miraculously escaped. They were there, they were among those who were being shot, but they were spared. Some who crawled out from uh, the, the bloody masses of bodies that accumulated on them in the cover of night and then found safety elsewhere. Bobby R., an important book, an important part of history as well. Another book that's been very influential for me is by Jonathan Kaufman called A Hole in the Heart of the World. And it's about the experience of the Jewish people um, in Hungary and nearby areas during World War II and following World War II. And one of the observations of the author that really touched me is, is he said, so many people thought of the Jewish people as dispensable that the loss of the Jewish people through murder and through genocide would have no consequence to the world, that it just didn't matter. And to see Jewish people have to recover from that attitude, because it can be internalized. If people think that, then maybe we're worthless. This book has had a profound impact on me. Another book that's worth reading is The Anguish of the Jews, 23 Centuries of Antisemitism by Edward Flannery. He wrote this in 1965, and then he updated it 20 years later, 1985. And in the update, he added um, a section, a chapter that he didn't have called The Last 25 Years. So he was covering the period from uh, the 60s into the 80s. And I was so taken when I was reviewing it this week, I was so taken by the issues that, that he documented. And one of them was anti-Semitism on college campuses. You see, I was thinking this was a new phenomenon. No, it's not. Another, another thing that he documented was the anti-Semitism not only on the right, but the anti-Semitism on the left. And I also thought, oh, that's a new situation, but I was just ignoring the history. So I wanna read to you just a few sentences out of uh, this, this chapter, the, the last 25 years. And Flannery, who was a Catholic priest, by the way, wrote this, anti-Semitism is generally considered by both Jews and non-Jews to be a phenomenon of the right. And certainly in modern times, its most spectacular displays exemplified by Tsarist pogroms, the Dreyfus Affair, Hitler, and chauvinistic demagogues have tended to justify that interpretation. But this view has tended to eclipse the fact that there has been an uninterrupted strain of anti-Semitism on the left. 
It should not further obscure, uh, forgive his uh, fine language, it should not obscure the recrudescence of leftist anti-Semitism that has developed since the rebirth of the state of Israel. Indeed, at present, leftist anti-Semitism predominates on the anti-Semitic spectrum, a spectrum running leftward from liberal to socialist to radical to communist. And he goes on, and then he has this reference. Uh, historian Zosha uh, Zakowski, writing in 1947 after a close study of French socialist literature, concluded that he could not find a single word on behalf of the Jews in the whole of that literature from 1820 to 1920. And then just a few more sentences. The connection between the ideology of the left and anti-Semitism is not accidental. An inevitable tension exists between leftist traditions and those which stress nationality, peoplehood, or religious commitment. The former, best exemplified in history by various brands of socialism, has canonized the conception of an egalitarian, classless society that would, to one degree or another, subordinate ethnic, religious, and national groups to the economic and political policies of the state. A good example of the latter is Judaism, where it grips here, of course, with the perennial conflict between universalism and particularism, and then it goes on to say extreme leftist ideologies and traditional Judaism are almost by definition incompatible. And it brings that forth with, with great clarity. Now, the reason that this really struck me is this was written in 1985. So it's not about today's Democrats and today's Republicans. It's about the history of thought and political thought and where anti-Semitism can grow and how it can grow on the right and how it can grow on the left. And it's particularly virulent in the left when it comes to Israel. So I'm not talking about what happened with Alan Amar and the Democrats the last couple of weeks by reading this. What I want you to understand is that anti-Semitism has been nurtured and has thrived in many different places. In the same way racism has. How many, how many of you know that racism is not, is not just a local phenomenon in, in one part of the United States. Anti-Semitism is not just a local phenomenon somewhere. It's a phenomenon all over the world, and it nurtures uh, hatred of the Jews to the point of driving the Jews out or murdering Jews. So when you join together in a visible way in a messianic synagogue and you're thinking, oh, we're gonna get all the blessings, it's important to understand. It's important to understand that some of the blessings will require courage to stand up and to stand with the Jewish people. Well, this is an introduction meant to help you think about how you can become better informed, how you can understand the issues, and to process your own experience. If you've been wounded by anti-Semitism as a Jew, or as someone married to Jews, or with Jews in your family, it's time to, to get enough healing so that you can become courageous. 
It's important to move forward, and that's the message of Purim, is don't get stuck. Don't be intimidated, don't be afraid. We're gonna close in prayer right now, and then we're gonna move next door, and we are gonna have an oneg in honor of Susan Fisk. Susan's daughter is there in the Shalom Center and will be joining us, and we'll also have our membership class starting at one o'clock in the Talmudim room. Let's pray, Lord, we thank you that you are a God of courage and boldness and you told us not to be afraid. And so I pray for our own hearts that as we enter into this Purim season, that we would also have courage as you do and that we would stand up and be bold in standing with you for the sake of the Jewish people. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua.